From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. ADX, sometimes called the Alcatraz of the Rockies, is the most secure prison in the United States. Prisoners spend 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. That's tough for inmates' mental health. I think what I'm most concerned about is just snapping one day, just losing it. We'll explore what happens when ADX prisoners are released. Then, an act of heroism during World War II that inspired a comic artist from Colorado. Plus, have you gotten your tickets to see the Claude Monet exhibit at the Denver Art Museum? We'll get an inside look at what it takes to collect the paintings from all over the world. More than 70 lenders from 15 different countries, and some loans came as far as Canberra, Australia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The story of Jabbar Currents isn't all that uncommon for inmates who spend time in what's known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Currents was in solitary confinement at the Federal Supermax Prison in Colorado for 11 years. He was released earlier this year. Shortly after that, he landed back in a Virginia prison. Vice News reporter Keegan Hamilton profiled Currents and other men who spent years in solitary at Colorado's Federal Supermax. Keegan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As we said, Jabbar Currents is back in prison, this time at a state facility in Virginia. He's scheduled to be sentenced this Friday. Who is he and what happened after his release? Uh, Jabbar is a guy who uh, is sort of atypical, uh, but also typical in a lot of ways of ADX. He is not one of the high-profile inmates. He's not El Chapo. He's not a 9-11 plotter. Uh, He's a guy with some mental health issues who had repeated misbehavior in prison, attacking other guards, uh, attacking guards and other inmates, and ended up at ADX, uh, where his mental health issues in solitary just seemed to get worse and worse. Um, After he was released, Uh, he lasted about uh, three days in a halfway house before he attacked a random woman at a bus stop. And like you said, this federal prison, it's also known as ADX, and it's a place where El Chapo is, but it's also a place where people who don't behave as well in other prisons might be placed. Is that right? Yeah, there's no uh, hard data about this. The Bureau of Prisons isn't uh, super transparent about uh, the inmate population at ADX. But uh, one uh, recent report where independent auditors came in estimated that something like 90 percent of the inmates there are there for just repeated behavioral issues, typically uh, assaulting guards, staff and inmates at other federal prisons. The focus of your piece is on inmates who live in solitary at the federal supermax in Florence, Colorado, and that's southwest of Colorado Springs. But it's also about their experiences once they're released. So can you tell me what these men have told you about what it's like to live in supermax? Life in supermax, by all accounts, is pretty grim. I mean, these guys are spending, in some cases, 23 hours a day in their cells. Uh, They have a small window, but it looks only up to the sky. They have a TV in their cell so they can watch TV, they can read. Um, But for the most part, they're not getting outside. And when they do get outside, uh, they exercise in a small cage that they call a a dog kennel uh, out in a yard with a few other inmates where they're not allowed to to physically interact with them. Um, There is a little bit of programming if they have shown a a history of behavior, uh, positive behavior. But for the most part, these guys are alone um, with their their own thoughts, grappling with that every single day for years and years and years, some cases 15, 20 years. 
And let's talk about those thoughts, because that's one of the concerns people have about solitary confinement is that it can contribute to mental illness. How so? Yeah, there's uh, some there's been quite a few studies that show that uh, prolonged time in solitary confinement, even uh, more than just a few weeks, can have some pretty severe issues for your mental health. I mean, it makes you more aggressive, more depressed, uh, more likely to lash out. And it's sort of ironic in, in the case of ADX because the guys who are in there, as we just said, are predominantly there because they have lashed out and have mental health issues. So on one hand, it's the, the Bureau of Prisons, the, the federal prison system saying, look, there's nowhere else that we can put these guys uh, without, to, in order to protect the safety of our, our staff and, and other prisoners. But on the other hand, the place that they're putting them uh, is arguably making their conditions worse. And what does mental health counseling look like at the prison? That has changed quite a bit in recent years. Uh, there was a class action lawsuit uh, filed that uh, was just recently settled a couple of years ago that went on for years and years. Uh, and about 10 years ago, there was virtually no mental health treatment. People were taken off of their medications for schizophrenia and other conditions. Um, they would get sort of talked to through a door, uh, their cell door by uh, a prison counselor who they often felt like wasn't giving them much help at all. More recently, as a result of that lawsuit and a settlement that the Bureau of Prisons agreed to, they have stepped that up and are trying, uh, by all accounts, to get more uh, better mental health counseling. But some of the guys that I talked to, including Jabbar Currents, felt like that was still falling significantly short of what it should be. And a Denver attorney, Ed Arrow, was actually a part of that lawsuit that you mentioned by a group of inmates who sued the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, because they wanted the system to do more for inmates and mental illness. What specifically was the outcome of that case? Like I said, it was uh, that that was settled. Uh, there was no clear winner. The Bureau of Prisons did not admit any wrongdoing, but they they sort of capitulated to a lot of the demands of this class of inmates uh, that was led by, as you said, Denver Attorney Ed Arrow. And as part of that, they they agreed to implement some group therapy procedures. So now inmates can uh, who qualify, who have shown good behavior and a willingness to participate, can get out of their cell and do group therapy. But it's not group therapy as you, you and I would normally conceive of it. Um, they've converted uh, what used to be a basketball gymnasium inside the prison uh, into this, this basically therapy room where they have phone booth size metal cages that are bolted to the ground. And so these prisoners are in the cages, you know, sharing their feelings, but they can't, you know, touch, touch each other. They're, they're, they're restricted. They're still enclosed, but they're in the same room as, as other people. So group therapy, but still in confinement. Let's talk about a key part of your article, which happens when these guys are released. Here's Jabbar Currents talking about the, at the federal supermax in 2016 about his fears about being released. I think what I'm most concerned about is just snapping one day. Just going off. It just, you know, just losing it. The protocol for release is that inmates are supposed to go through a step-down program to get ready for the outside, but your article indicates the program isn't that effective. How does it work? Yeah, there are a few different paths out of ADX. Uh, For the most part, when a guy is nearing the end of his sentence, uh, in recent years, what the Bureau of Prisons has done is transfer them uh, through a few other federal prisons, getting gradually gradually closer to the, the point where they'll be released. Typically, that lasts about two to three months, as it did in the case of Jabbar Currents, but they're in solitary confinement in those other prisons the entire time. Uh, They have also implemented uh, what ADX is calling a pre-release unit, where they have a social worker who 
who's trying to get these guys uh, the basics, the bare essentials, uh, an ID, a social security card, the stuff that they, they'll need uh, at, at the bare minimum to survive on the outside. Um, but there have been mixed reviews from that, too, where uh, people say, you know, I was just filling out coloring books the whole time. Or in Jabbar's case, he refused to participate because he felt like it wasn't safe to be around other inmates for him. Keegan, let's talk about what happens when these guys are released from the facility, also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. We have some audio from one of the inmates, Rodney Jones, describing the day of his release, and it's followed by Ed Arrow. He's the Denver attorney who sued on behalf of the inmates who were in solitary confinement and complained about insufficient mental health treatment. It was about 5.30 in the morning. They took me out of my cell, put me in a van, and we drove. My time was up. But I'm still in shackles, leg irons, and, 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 and belly chain. I'm a free man, though. They dropped me off at uh, Union Station. But, you know, I'm looking, and it's all new to me. So they take the, the lock off, take the thing off. They give me, this, give me my, my paperwork, and they tell me I can go. I don't know where to go. The idea that they would chain him up and put him in the back of a van and drive him across the country struck me as crazy. If he's too dangerous to be unrestrained in a van with two trained correctional officers, what does that tell you about the mindset of the Bureau of Prisons? You describe several situations where these guys are being released. They're brought outside the prison and put in a vehicle with corrections officers. They're shackled during the drive. Then they're dropped off and basically left. Apart from the shock for the inmates, this sounds like a major security risk. Yeah, it, it certainly shocked me when I first heard about that. Uh, and and again, like the, the way that releases from ADX have gone has been sort of divided into to two eras. Up until about five years ago, uh, Rodney's story was pretty common, where a guy would go straight from ADX, be loaded into a van and driven and dropped off to wherever he his family was, wherever he was arrested in some cases. Um, more recently, as I said before, Earlier in the previous segment, they uh, will transfer these guys to other prisons and then do a similar thing. Jabbar Currents, um, the man who was out for about three days before attacking someone, was unshackled in the parking lot of his halfway house. Uh, and that seems like, you know, it, as Ed Arrow said in that situation, like if they're too dangerous to be unrestrained around correctional officers, why does the Bureau of Prisons think it's OK to, to let them loose uh, around the general public? And we should mention that more than half of the inmates at the Federal Supermax facility in Colorado will eventually be released. Many describe the culture shock of getting out, sometimes not knowing how to use cell phones, debit cards. So there's just this strangeness of being in a house outside the prison walls. Let's go back to Jabbar Currents, who will be sentenced this week for a crime he committed shortly after he was released from the Federal Supermax prison. Is it fair to blame his problems and crimes on the time he spent in solitary in Colorado? Isn't there some level of personal responsibility? Absolutely, there is a level of personal responsibility. And even uh, Ed Arrow, who, who represented Jabbar Currents and is one of his staunchest defenders, says at the, at the end of the day, the only person to blame here is, is Jabbar Currents for making the decision that, uh, to attack someone. Um, however, th- there is something to be said for, you know, was this was Jabbar set up for failure? Is there any way that he was going to last more than a couple weeks or a couple months? You know, what if he had uh, time out of solitary? What if he had better counseling in the years leading up to his release? Um, certainly, you know, Jabbar did what Jabbar did, and, and Jabbar's going to be held accountable for that. But 
uh, I think it, you can make a pretty strong argument that the Bureau of Prisons didn't do everything in its power to set him up to succeed. Colorado has moved in recent years to reduce solitary. The problem was highlighted when a prisoner just released from isolation killed Tom Clements in 2013, who was at the time the head of Colorado Corrections. Do you have a sense of whether Colorado's reforms are working? Yes. Yeah, so for my article, I spoke to Rick Ramish, who was uh, followed uh, Tom Clements as the director of this Colorado state prison system. And he sort of carried on the torch that, that Clements had started in trying to phase out solitary and end the practice of releasing Colorado state prisoners directly from solitary confinement to the streets. Uh, Rick talked a lot about how he felt this had been a tremendous success, uh, both for inmates who are you know, less likely to lash out after spending significant periods of time in solitary, but also for the correctional officers and staff of these prisons who felt like they were um, getting inmates who were more well-behaved. Um, they were having fewer incidents of violence. Um, I wasn't able to go into the Colorado prison system um, and their maximum security units to see this firsthand. But uh, according to Rick and some of the data that, that the state of Colorado has been releasing, it has been a success. And in a lot of ways, Colorado is uh, you know, setting the standard for state prison systems across the country. And that, of course, like you said, is talking about a state prison system. Um, and if states like Colorado, if they're moving to reduce solitary, I wonder why doesn't the federal government seem to be doing the same? That, that's a great question. And the federal government, uh, in a lot of ways, they, they are, ADX is unique. There's only about 400 prisoners who are at that prison who are in solitary or 24-7, more or less. Uh, but there are other Basically, every federal prison uh, has some segregation units, and more common is punit- what they call punitive segregation, where somebody misbehaves and they're punished by getting sent to the hole, as it's classically called. And that uh, has been the model for years and years and years, ever since Alcatraz, which is sort of the mm-hmm. original federal supermax prison. They've had solitary confinement, and they've used it uh, to punish inmates. And now we're seeing that is when inmates go into solitary confinement, it's not like they magically learn their lesson and, and behave better. That uh, there's there should be, I think, advocates argue more carrot and less stick in this, this system. Keegan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Keegan Hamilton is a reporter with Vice News. He recently wrote an article about the federal supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. After the break, a comic artist illustrates World War II history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana, something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. There's a story of heroism from World War II that's not widely known. In 1944, a train full of munitions was heading to the small English town of Soham when one of the train cars caught fire. An explosion would obliterate Soham if it reached town, but... There were luckily two very brave men aboard the train that sacrificed themselves by taking apart the portion that was on fire and getting it as far away from the other 43 cars full of ammunition 
that would have obliterated the rest of the town. So only their car, the main car and the first car exploded. And then what's even more miraculous about this story is that the whole town came together after this disaster and they rebuilt the train tracks overnight so that the remaining 43 cars could get to the front line to help everyone. That's Haley Austin of Bennett, Colorado, who was inspired by this story and adapted it for the Commando comic series in the UK. She's the first American to write for them and joined my colleague Ryan Warner in July via Skype from Scotland. Haley, were you a big fan of comics growing up in Bennett, Colorado? You know, actually, I wasn't. I had read maybe one or two growing up, but it wasn't until I went to university at Creighton University in Nebraska that I actually got really into comics and went from wanting to become maybe a literature professor to being like, no, I will only do comics. This is my only path in life. Wow. What was the comic that was so transformative? (laughs) It was Mouse, um, M-A-U-S by Art Spiegelman. It's a biographical telling about his parents surviving Auschwitz. So I guess the historical kind of comics have really grabbed me. I remember the first time I saw Mouse as well. I don't think at that point I had read anything but like Archie comics, you know, and and superheroes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I remember being so surprised that comics could deal with incredibly serious things. Is that the experience you had? That was it, exactly. That they could deal with things that was so different from literature because you've got that visual aspect. So there's almost more to kind of go through and contemplate. And there's visual metaphor, there's visual references to other things. And it just kind of opened up that whole world of comics aren't just one for kids or two funny. Okay. You told us about that World War II story that you were inspired by, the train story. Uh, This is for the issue titled Steel Inferno. How did you find out about this chapter of history? Actually, I was just looking up stories that weren't well known. Um, I knew it kind of needed to be situated in the UK. In school, I knew some stories, but I wanted something that was a little different that people hadn't really heard about. And the rail disaster just really stood out to me because of how heroic everyone was and how much of a disaster was avoided. And so when I saw that, I kind of went, well, what if it was actually a Nazi spy? Because they kind of determined that they didn't really know the cause of it, but it was likely just because the car was full of ammunition. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what if it was a Nazi spy and it was this attempt to kind of shake the war or like ignite the German war effort? So that's what I wrote. Are all the Commando comics, are they all about World War II? No. So it's about any war time. They've got like Viking ones, but the majority of them are World War II. I mentioned that you're the first American ever to write for this British comic series. But you are also exceptional in in being a woman in this world as well. Help us understand the place women do or do not occupy in the world of comic books. Yeah, Commando is thought of as this largely male-dominated comic, simply, I think, because it's a war comic. But in reality, even though I'm one of the first women to write in the title for 30 years, 
women have been a part of Commando since the beginning as letterers and now as editors. The majority of the editorial team are women mm. uh, right now. And they're beginning to get more female voices, not only from the writing and the editorial team, but telling stories about women during the war, which I think is also really important. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I think of the folks working to crack codes. Many of them were women. Oh, exactly. Women flew planes. Women resisted. They were spies. They were so many different, really interesting roles that I just think we haven't talked about as much right now. I understand that your next comic is uh, about women. Tell us what it will touch on. Yeah, so it's about uh, the women of the French resistance just before France is liberated from the Nazis. So I'm looking at, once again, basing it off of real women, but telling kind of a fictionalized account of their resistance efforts. Is there someone who springs to mind who has a particularly fascinating story? Oh my gosh, yes. So the women in my comic are going to be all French, but there was an American agent who went to England and became like a British spy. They dropped her in Paris and she parachutes down, but she only has one leg. Her other leg is wooden because she shot it off in a hunting accident. And she becomes one of the most renowned spies in the French resistance. So much so that she was known as the limping woman or the woman with a limp. And they put this huge kind of price on her head. She fled across the mountains into Spain, which are treacherous and would take weeks of travel. Gets there and says, you need to send me back, but I need to look different. So essentially, they disguise her as this old grandma. And so she goes back and continues kind of these resistance efforts of sabotage and getting information to different places as this old kind of grandma. And they did like makeup and like filed her teeth down and everything so that she looked much older than she was. Well, let's be sure to name her. Uh, What's her name? Virginia Hall is her name. Virginia Hall. And that story that you told us, none of that is fictionalized. That that's just that was her life. That was her life. Wow. She's an amazing, amazing figure that I can't believe we're not taught about more. If you could pick one comic to write for, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. That is a great question. <laughs> for the publisher, I would choose Image Comics because they're creator-owned comics And they've got a very different style for the most part from kind of the Marvel and DC. But if I could write on a title, it would be the female Thor title that they've got going right now. And they just announced the movie for it in 2021. So I'm really excited about that. The female Thor. I think Image Comics, they do The Walking Dead, don't they? Yeah, Image Comics did The Walking Dead. They've done tons of stuff like that. Haley, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Colorado's Haley Austin is the first American to write for the award-winning UK comic Commando. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in July. She's getting her doctorate in comics at the University of Dundee. What does it take to amass a collection of Monet paintings from all over the world? The Denver Art Museum opened a new Monet exhibit. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf found out how it all came together. 
Reporters and photographers crowd around Denver Art Museum director Christoph Heinrich as he describes the scope of the show. More than 70 lenders from 15 different countries, and some loans came as far as uh, Canberra, Australia. Uh, they came from museums as well as private collectors. And a lot of the private loans actually haven't been on view for a long, long time, so it'll be the first time to share them with a larger audience. Some of these private loans have never been seen in the U.S. before. Away from the clicking cameras, Heinrich explains he's dreamed of producing this show for a while. The idea to do a show with Monet was, for me personally, always on my bucket list. Monet is a trailblazer, he explains, for the way he used color, his loose brushstrokes, a leader in the Impressionism movement. Claude Monet has been, in many ways, one of the artists who built the bridge from the system of thoughts, the approach to beauty, the approach to visual things of the 19th century into the 20th century. A few years back... Heinrich reconnected with a former colleague at the Museum Barberini outside of Berlin. And we realized that we both have that dream and that we both would love to do a Monet show one day and that with their collection and our collection, we might have already a good starting point. The Denver Museum has 10 Monets in its collection and Museum Barberini has access to a fair share too. So they put together a wish list and more than three years ago, the museums got to work convincing institutions to go without key works for more than six months. For Art Museum curator Angelica Daño. Impressionist works, and certainly works by Monet, are among the most beloved by visitors, and it is a sacrifice. Museum staff send letters, make calls, visit in person, whatever it took to explain why they need the work to tell the story. In this show, they wanted to highlight Monet's relationship with nature. Daniel says this was the perfect narrative for an exhibition spanning his entire career. Nature throughout his life is just fundamental. It's a dialogue he sought. He loved to be alone in nature, immersed in nature. They even worked with big auction houses to track down paintings that are in private hands. But the, quote, sweetest reply Christoph Heinrich got came two years ago. On Christmas morning. Before I opened the packages, I opened my emails. And I um, found an email from the Marunuma Art Museum in Japan. The museum held the first painting Monet exhibited. Heinrich and his colleagues had their hearts set on it, but thought it was a long shot. So I opened that email, and it says that they are very willing to loan this painting, but under a condition. It was good news. They would loan the painting if the Denver Museum would also display a second one by Monet's mentor, Eugene Baudin. And that was completely unexpected and was probably one of the sweetest Christmas gifts I've ever gotten. Early this year, the Denver Museum started making travel arrangements for the art. Angelica Daño says they hope the show will appeal to a wide swath of people. Monet, an exhibition of this appeal, allows us to engage visitors. They may not visit the museum on a regular basis, but that while they're visiting the Monet show, then linger on a little bit longer after. That is often the hope with these blockbuster exhibitions, that they will attract first-timers who then continue to visit the museum. And they do tend to attract first-timers like the 2016 Star Wars exhibition, where 40% who attended had never set foot in the museum before. And overall attendance has grown to nearly 900,000 last year. But it's not clear what role these blockbusters have played in that. Tim Schneider is the art business editor for Artnet News. 
He says studies show that blockbuster shows don't boost visitation over the long run. If you want to draw them in to the same scale as what you did the first time, you have to present something that's even more spectacular, which involves an even heavier investment, which is a real problem for most institutions because blockbusters are incredibly, incredibly expensive. The Denver Art Museum won't disclose the cost of the Monet show, but it's getting help with expenses from corporate and individual sponsors and, of course, ticket sales. The museum also expects to mount more of these large, exclusive shows in the future. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Claude Monet, the truth of nature is open at the Denver Art Museum through February 2nd. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for listening. Thanks especially for supporting the stories that CPR and NPR tell. I'm not exaggerating when I say that it is your, the listeners' donations that make it possible. What you're listening to is the fruit of years' worth of donations. So thanks for joining. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.